It's great to be with you guys again uh, this morning. If you're familiar with history at all, or I mean, just the fact that we are Baptists in the room, we are, we are Protestants, so I'm going to assume that you know a little bit about the Protestant Reformation. What you may be less familiar with is what is called the Counter-Reformation. This was the movement within Catholicism that acknowledged that the Protestants got some things right. They just thought how they go about addressing those should be a little bit different. And so they wanted the reforms to be more internal as opposed to external or as opposed to being a reformation that involved leaving what was at that time the established church. One of the main characters of this movement was a man named Juan de la Cruz. De la Cruz was a Carmelite monk who proposed reforms that were so controversial to some of the establishment that they felt threatened by him and so they kidnapped him in the middle of the night. They imprisoned him unjustly. They put him in solitary confinement. They fed him only three days a week and they whipped him both privately and publicly. But he would go on to show us that the dungeon doesn't have to be the end of your faith. It can be the beginning of it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11 today and Luke chapter 7. You can go ahead and turn there and keep your thumb or your fingers in the pages as we as we go into those scriptures in just a few moments. 1,500 years prior to Juan de la Cruz, a similar path was shared by the man that we'll read about today, the man that we call John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah, who disrupted the religious order of his time and became also the target of those who found him too disruptive and too unconventional and controversial. So John the Baptist was also wrongly imprisoned by the ones who were most threatened by his message. And we'll just go on to add, John the Baptist would die in prison. So let's get that out of the way. His life did not turn out the way that he thought it was going to or the way that he probably thought it deserved to. But the passage will show us that the dungeon does not have to be the end of our life. It can be the beginning of our life as well. Let's look in Matthew chapter 11 first. I'm at verse 2. And it says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Here we find the one who has prepared the way of Jesus, who has preached repentance in the desert who has baptized Jesus. The one who once boldly said, behold the Lamb of God, now with uncertainty in his voice, says, are you the one? Or have I gotten all this wrong? Some of you may have had that question at some point in your life, and if you have, or if you're having it now, you're in good company because you're in the company of John the Baptist. This is the faith deconstruction of John the Baptist. But John will show us that deconstruction does not have to be the end of your faith. It can be the beginning of it. Now, there's a few things that we should note here. One of the things is that the scripture tells us that John had heard what Christ was doing. Well, what are the things that John had heard? We don't really know, but we can take a good guess based on the ministry of Jesus and based also on the response of Jesus later on in this passage. 
We read from uh, Luke chapter four earlier. That's the first sermon that Jesus ever gave. It's the inauguration of his ministry. And the things that he says in there, the, Lord is on, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like I said, we don't know exactly what are the things John had heard, but that's in Luke 4. And we're told in Luke 3, that's where we, to- we are told that John was imprisoned. So it's likely that John has heard about this sermon and he has heard about the ministries of Jesus. And what's on his mind is this idea of setting the prisoners free. Aren't you the one that you say you are? Don't you know where I am? Are you the one that's going to rescue me from here? Or do I need to look for someone else? John is looking at Jesus for whom he has served so much and so well. And he's saying, what about me? Have you ever been there? If so, the dungeon doesn't have to be the end of your faith. It can be the beginning of it. In the past several years, the topic of deconstructing faith has come up, especially among those of our population who are what we would call young adults. Millennials, Gen Z. I've sat across from many of you as you've told me about your children who have left the church. I've sat across from many young adults, both, both inside this church and outside this church and across this town to have this conversation. And so I share these words with you today either to equip you for when you might have these conversations with young adults in your life, or maybe if you're going through this dungeon yourself, to encourage you. But this idea of deconstruction at its heart is is the idea of questioning everything that you have sort of inherited or just sort of assumed to be true, just to see if if there's more to the story. It's the idea of taking uh, not not what is in the spotlight, that everybody can see and everybody just kind of assumes is there, but going into the corners and looking in the corners and turning over rocks and just seeing if there's something else there that can contribute more to the story. Deconstruction is a term that is linked to a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida. He was interested just in finding the truth and going into these nooks and crannies. And one of the things he was interested in was hearing the voices from the margins because those weren't the voices in the spotlight. And one of the things that you'll hear in our conversations these days is about listening to the voices in the margins, listening to the voices of women, listening to the voices of people of color. And those are all things that we should do just to consider what is there that might be the truth that can help us understand things better. To the best of my knowledge, and I'm an amateur at philosophy, He wasn't interested in breaking down the dominant narratives of his day, Derrida wasn't, as much as he was just kind of examining if we have the whole story and encouraging others to do the same. It's the the process itself is not frightening in and of itself because it's just presenting questions and asking questions and turning over rocks. What is the frightening part is the answers because you, you find yourself asking questions you didn't think you would ask or finding answers that you didn't think you would find. Now, this is heavy, so let me give it to you as an example. If you ever thought to yourself, hmm, I wonder what I would look like without a beard. Followed by, oh no. And immediately start growing your beard back. The the beard which you've had for four and a half years. 
That is like the process of deconstruction, but the process isn't the elimination of the beard. The process is asking the question you hadn't asked before. So when my daughter, my oldest daughter now, she's 16, when she was three and a half years old, I picked her up one day from preschool and we were walking out to the car. She looked up into the sky and it was a sky very much like today. It was bright blue, not a cloud anywhere to be seen, just brilliant sky and and she saw a plane like a dot going across the sky. She said, look, daddy, a jet. And I looked up and sure enough, there was a jet there. I don't know how she saw it. I wouldn't have noticed it. So I said, Hannah, very good. Like you have really sharp eyes. So then I had to explain to her what that meant. But she said, well, daddy, do you have sharp eyes? And I said, well, you know, I have to wear what's called corrective lenses, like contact lenses and glasses. But with the, with the help of those, I think I do have really sharp eyes. I think I can see well. This is another way to look at this process. It's, it's looking at life and seeing life as if we are wearing lenses. And what a deconstructionist like Derrida would say is you wear lenses that you don't even know that you wear. That either your upbringing or your culture or just how life has turned out for you is a lens that you wear that influences how you see things that you're not even aware of. Kind of like going to the movies and watching a 3D movie and and five minutes in, you forget that you even have the 3D glasses on. This is what Derrida would say, this is like. And all he wants you to do is just try on another pair of lenses consider something else because the process, like I said, is asking questions of your environment that you never thought to ask before. Questions like, are you the one who is to come or should I look for another? Let's look at Jesus's response to this and I'm going to look at this from Luke chapter 7. Verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And the reason I read this from Luke is because Luke includes this detail that Matthew does not. The stories are exactly the same other, otherwise. But what Luke is telling us is John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and Jesus' immediate response is not even to respond. It's just to go around and start healing people and start doing these miracles. And some scholars suggest that he did this for maybe an hour or a couple of hours before he finally addressed John's disciples. And he says, starting in verse 22, he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So Jesus' response is hearkening back to his sermon in Luke chapter 4. All of the things that he has said in Luke chapter 4 that he will do, he is doing here and he has done up until this moment in time. Good news is preached to the poor. The blind are receiving their sight back. Those who are oppressed by disease and leprosy and demons and things like that are being freed. But do you see the one thing That's in his sermon in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus does not give back to the messengers. The prisoners will go free. And the one thing that is in his report to the messengers to go back to John and tell him that's not in his sermon in Luke chapter 4 is the dead are raised. So we have John looking at Jesus saying, are you the one? And, And Jesus not even responding personally to John and saying, yes, but no. 
You're not going to be rescued the way you think you are. You're, you're going to die there. But that death doesn't have to be the end of you. The dungeon might be the end of your life, but it doesn't have to, but it can also be the beginning of it. It might be the end of your life, but it also can be the begin, beginning of it. We should also notice the other message that Jesus sends here. Go and tell. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Go and share the testimony that you have, not a set of platitudes. Just go and tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. This is the word of encouragement that Jesus has for the messengers of John. And in a, in a world right now, a world of deconstruction, I don't think there's anything more important than we can do than tell our stories. I have a professor, Leonard Sweet, that says, the future belongs not to those who have the best statistics. I know engineers hate to hear that. Not to those who have the best statistics, but those who have the best stories. And we live in an age, I think, where that is more true than, than ever before. So as you're sitting across from someone in your life who may be wrestling with these things, tell them your testimony. Tell them about the time you came to faith. Tell them about the time you feel like you were in the dark and you were delivered. Plead to Jesus on their behalf like John's messengers do. And go and tell your story. Your children should know your faith stories, the encounters you've had with the Spirit. You should know your parents' stories. You have a great opportunity to do that at Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks. And we need to tell honest stories to the existing culture at large. The Bible never shies away from difficult or unflattering portrayals of its characters. Not John the Baptist, not Peter, not David. We can and should be honest about the state that the collective church in the West is in. The earliest church was known for their love of widows and orphans. And we've been known in the last few years, I say we collectively, the church has been battered by abuse scandals involving women and children. The early church was known for their care of the poor. The Western church is known for its desire for influence and status. The early church was known and ridiculed among the Romans as a place that welcomed women and children. And we are known and ridiculed for being a place where patriarchy thrives. We should tell our stories, even the ones that are unflattering. There's still deliverance there. There's still rocks to unturn there. So my oldest daughter and I were driving home. She asked me if I have sharp eyes. I said, I think I have sharp eyes. And this began a merciless line of questioning. So she pointed to the sky and he, again and she said, look, daddy, another jet. Do you see it? And to be fair, like I didn't take it really seriously, but I kind of glanced around. You know, I was driving. And I said, no, Hannah, I don't see it. Well, then she said, daddy, do you see the trees? And we're on the interstate. The interstate is lined with trees. Yes, Hannah, I see the trees. Well, it's then and there that she pronounced her judgment. Daddy, I think you have a little bit sharp eyes. <laughs> to which I said, you sure about that? Which began another line of questioning. Daddy, do you see the moon? Yes. Daddy, do you see the sky? What kind of a game is this? 
Yes, Hannah, I see the sky. Daddy, do you see the birds? Now, I need you all to know there were no birds. And I knew there were no birds. There were no birds. But I was kind of perturbed by her earlier judgment of me. And so I just said, yes, Hannah, I see the birds. And then the silence in the car threw off her rhythm. So I turned my head and looked at Hannah just in enough time to see her turning her head at me and narrowing her eyes and saying, Daddy, there are no birds. (laughs) That's why you have a little bit sharp eyes. The lenses through which I viewed the world were determined by my daughter to not be good lenses, in part because I couldn't see some things that she could see and in part because I told her I saw some things that I really didn't see or that I thought maybe I had seen. This is why it's important to tell our stories because we don't even realize the lenses that we wear and perhaps by telling these stories it can encourage others to turn over rocks, to look a little bit deeper, to try another pair of lenses. Perhaps it will inspire those in the dark and in the dungeon to not give up. The questioning of our faith, if we want to talk about telling our stories, is nothing new. Talk to any college student that's taken a philosophy 101 class. Some of us have been there. Or look back at Christian history. Previous generations have called what we call deconstruction today the dark night of the soul or a crisis of faith. The dark night of the soul was was coined over 500 years ago by a Catholic monk named St. John of the Cross. And it has been used by people ever since then to describe this moment like John the Baptist finds himself in, this moment of feeling like you're in the dark and like you're in the dungeon, like, like you've been abandoned and you're questioning everything that you know. We need to be okay with telling this story, even the parts of it that are unflattering. And this phenomenon might have a new name, but it's nothing new. So if you've gone through that dark night of the soul or that crisis of faith and you've arrived on this side, tell your story. And if you know someone going through it now, listen to their story and if they ask, tell them yours. Perhaps what is most remarkable about all of this is the way Jesus sums it up. We'll turn back to Matthew 11 for that. In verse 7, we're told, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The creative, this is a creative way for Jesus to answer this question or to, or to address this topic. John's in prison, but his, his life has served a purpose. It hasn't been directionless like a, a reed swaying in the wind. But he wasn't here to inaugurate an earthly kingdom either. He was here to be a prophet. He was here to prepare the way. He was here to tell them 
what was coming. And Jesus is alluding to what the people and his audience have already seen and heard to prepare them for what they're about to see and hear. And when we hear this phrase, preparing the way, in reference to John the Baptist, we think of the desert, we think of the repentance, we think of the baptisms. But John's still preparing the way. He's still preparing the way here in a very physical sense in a dungeon, in the dungeon of Herod's palace. Jesus will also experience the depths of the dungeon, literally on the night of his trial, but also cosmically on the cross. Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus will experience the abandonment of God. He'll ask, what about me? Have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like. Jesus will experience not his friends running to reassure him, but falling asleep on him and abandoning him. Jesus will go to the Father on our behalf, and he will plead our case to the Father just as John's messengers did for John. And Jesus will send us the Holy Spirit to encourage and equip us just as he did sending John's messengers back to John. And when he says that there's no one born greater than John, yet those coming after John will be greater even than he, he's talking about us. What he's saying there is if you've been there, it's not a reflection of how God sees you. And you're in a greater position even than John, who didn't, because Jesus didn't trade places with John, but he offers to trade places with you. Because he offers to sit in that dungeon cosmically so that the death that you may die in the dungeon doesn't have to be the end of you. It can be the beginning. In the process of asking questions of your faith that you never before considered does not have to be the end of your faith. It can be the beginning. We don't even have it if the disciples don't go through this process themselves, if they don't ask questions about everything that they thought they knew and reconsider and try on another lens. And they came out with a stronger faith than they had before. Still faith in the one God. Still faith that God was about saving his people, but with a new lens on. So if you know someone going through this process or who has gone through it, it's okay. It's nothing to be afraid of, but it does feel dark and it does feel alone. So tell them your story and listen to their stories and plead to God on their behalf. And if you are experiencing it now or you know someone who does, that's okay too. My only word would be, don't stop flipping over the rocks or looking in the corners. When you find one rock, don't stop there. Keep considering. Doubt your doubts. Deconstruct your deconstruction. What I mean by that is apply the same rigorous process to your new discoveries that you do to your inherited foundations. Picture of what that might look like. I saw a story earlier this week about a mother who, who said that her son had gone to the used bookstore or a Goodwill or something like that and came back with a 50 cent book, tattered, torn, almost in pieces, old, not wor- worth anything more than 50 cents. He started reading the book and inside the pages he found $500. How many people looked at that book and didn't even bother to open the pages? They turned over the rock and they found the book and they saw the 50 cents and they thought, eh. 
And this son turned over the rock and saw the book and thought, I'll give it a shot. And he turned it over again and he opened it up and he found the value inside. Take the next step. So as you're talking with someone or as you're experiencing this yourself and you're wondering about voices of color being elevated in our society, in our culture, which needs to happen, that's, that's a good thing. But also consider there are 66 books of this Bible all written by people of color, ethnic minorities with a long history of being oppressed. And to dismiss their words, to say that these are words of oppression and not words of, that are life-giving, is to just do what you accuse others of doing. Turn over the next rock. Deconstruct your deconstruction. As you consider the voices of sexual minorities who are becoming more mainstream, consider the words that are found in here. Sexual minorities who had this really weird way of living in their Roman and Greek culture. Even minorities in the way they approached sexuality in the Bible, but they arrived at a place where they taught their ethics. And historian Kyle Harper says it's one of the most astonishing developments of the first century, the fact that a band of Christians and their ethics and approach to sexuality took over the majority of cultures in the Roman and Greek empire and the cultures since then. Consider the voices of those minorities. As you consider, or as you destruct, deconstruct Western Christianity, And as you know, people who say, well, it's, you know, a white man's religion or it's only for the powerful or it's it's largely male dominated, it's largely out of touch, it's largely for the establishment, then consider, turn over the next rock and consider that the average Christian in the world today is a poor woman in the global South, either South America or Africa or Asia. And the largest growing system of belief among white males is atheism. Go the full circle, turn over the next rock, deconstruct your deconstruction. The church has gotten a lot wrong. And deconstruction in our age is like the Reformation was in its age, driving people away from the established church. And we could use a counter-reformation inside the church, the established church. We could acknowledge that those who are leaving or those who have harsh things to say are right about some things. But... Let's also encourage them to keep flipping rocks and keep seeing where truth may be found because there's a lot there and there's a lot to consider and there's a lot that is valuable because the last thing we need is to look at the Juan de la Cruces of our day and throw them into our prisons or for the Juan de la Cruces of our day to throw us into theirs. Juan de la Cruz would eventually escape from his unjust imprisonment and despite the opportunities that were there for him to grow bitter, to grow angry at God or at those who had treated him wrongly. He said that his time in the dungeon actually helped to serve, helped serve to deepen his faith and drive him further into discipleship. He used the time to ask questions that he had never asked before, to look under rocks and through filters that he had never before noticed and to lean deeper onto God because there was no other place for him to go. And after going through that process, Juan told his story and today he is admired and venerated. He wrote a book about his experience and people 
ever since then have misunderstood what his book was about. They thought it was about hanging on for dear life when you felt like God had abandoned you. But it really was about the growth and the depth that can come through these times in the dungeon. It was a book about the beginning of faith, not the end of it. Perhaps you heard of his story. It's called The Dark Night of the Soul by a man that today we call St. John of the Cross. And his story can be our, our story too if only we see our moments in the dungeon or the moments of our loved ones in the dungeon and in the darkness as opportunities not for the end of our faith or our life before the beginning of it.